0: Hey, last week we began a a three-week series talking about generosity, and so last week we looked at the story from the Old Testament, and what the story in the Old Testament taught us was that ultimately everything belongs to God, that you and I, we don't own anything, we don't have anything that did not first come from God. We own absolutely nothing, everything comes from God. Uh, This morning, we're going to be in the New Testament, so if you got a Bible, uh, 1 Timothy chapter 6, if you want to follow along, is where we are going to be there, but one of the things we kind of talked about last week is how um, all of us, if not certainly most of us, we want to be more generous people, right? All of us, if we step back and say, yeah, like, I I want to be known as a more generous person, but as I said last week, if you're like me, that's really, really hard. It's easier said than done, like, I have a hard time being more generous, and so do some of you. And so the question for this morning is, what is stopping us from becoming more generous? Why do we have a hard time being more generous people? And the answer is not like our bank account. Okay, the thing stopping us from being more generous is not getting more money. Some of us, we think, well, if I just got a raise, if I got over kind of that tax bracket, if I got out of debt, then I would be able to become more generous. But I don't think that's the answer. Because I don't think generosity is a result of what it says on our W-2. I think generosity is more what's in our heart. It's more a heart issue than it is a resource issue. And so Paul in 1 Timothy here, he's going to show us that, that ultimately what we do with our money, ultimately whether we live generous lives or not, it has more to do with our hearts than it has to do with what we have. And so he's going to talk about how we can begin to shift our hearts, how we can move our hearts to become more generous people. So 1 Timothy chapter 6, we're going to pick it up in verse 3. We'll kind of explain this in a second, but Paul is addressing some false teachers here. So this is what he says. Paul says, some people may contradict our teaching, but these are the wholesome teachings of the Lord Jesus Christ. These teachings promote a godly life. Anyone who teaches something different is arrogant and lacks understanding. Such a person has an unhealthy desire to quibble over the meaning of words. This stirs up arguments ending in jealousy, division, slander, and evil suspicions. These people always cause trouble. Their minds have become corrupt and they have turned their backs on the truth. And listen to what he says. He says, to them, a show of godliness is just a way to become wealthy. So he says, there's these false teachers. They're teaching false doctrine as a way to enrich themselves. But then this is what he says. He says, yet, true godliness with contentment, true godliness with contentment is itself great wealth. After all, we brought nothing with us when we came into the world, and we can take nothing with us when we leave it. So if we have enough food and clothing, let us be content. But people who long to be rich fall into the temptation and are trapped by many foolish and harmful desires that plunge them into ruin and destruction for the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. And some people craving money had wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many sorrows. Jump down to verse 17. And he goes on, he says, so teach those who are rich in this world not to be proud and not to trust in their money, which is so unreliable. Their trust should be in God, who richly gives us all what we need for our enjoyment. Tell them to use their money to do good. They should be rich in good works and generous to those who need always being ready to share with others. By doing this, they will be storing up treasures as a good foundation for the future, so they may experience true life. So again, what's going on here is Paul is writing to this young pastor named Timothy, and Paul is addressing these um, false doctrines and these false teachers that have kind of begun to invade the area where Timothy and his church is. And some of these false teachers, they are basically saying, hey, God's purpose for you in life is for you to be rich. These false teachers have, God wants you to be rich, so what you need to do is you need to pursue rich, richness. You need to pursue wealth at all costs. And in Paul's whole response here, part of what Paul is saying, is he's saying, hey, God doesn't want you to be rich. And at the same time, he's saying, "And God doesn't not want you to be rich. What Paul is saying here, we'll see, is he's basically saying, hey, whether you are rich or you're poor, that's irrelevant. Because what God ultimately wants for you is not for you to be rich or poor. What God ultimately wants for you is for you to be generous. Right? What Paul is showing here, God is more concerned about what you have in your heart than what you have in your bank account. So he's saying God wants you to be rich, but not necessarily materially rich. Paul's saying God wants you to be rich in spirit, rich in good deeds. And so Paul kind of lays out, he shows the key for how we can do that, how we can become like that. In verse 6, I'll read it again. Paul said, Yet true godliness with contentment is in itself great wealth. Godliness plus contentment is great wealth. And so Paul is saying here, hey, don't live this kind of lifestyle where wealth and things and material riches are your end goal. Don't just pursue wealth. Paul's saying, Instead, Pursue godliness and pursue contentment. Because, as I'll show us, when we find godliness, meaning relationship with God, and then we find contentment, he's saying that is even better than wealth. What he's saying here is that when if you if you really want like a rich life, not material, but a rich life, if you want peace and joy and security and fulfillment, and all of these things that all of us ultimately want and long for. Paul's saying, if you want those things, the way to that life, it's not through getting your dream home, it's not through getting a new car, it's not through crossing over that tax bracket, it's not through taking your business public, he says, the way to that kind of life that you really ultimately want, through godliness, relationship with God, and contentment. So Paul says here, contentment is a huge deal. Now, let's define that so we're all kind of on the same page as we go forward. And Paul defines contentment in verse 8. He says, if we have enough food and clothing, let us be content. That's what Paul says. If you have enough food and clothing, then you can be content. So contentment is being satisfied with what we have, with what God has given us. It's a mindset that says, if I have the basics that I need to survive, then I'll be okay if I have just the basics that I need to survive, then I can still have joy. I can still have peace. I can still have fulfillment in life. Now, for us living in America in 2023, apart from the power of the Holy Spirit changing our hearts, it is almost impossible for us to truly be content. Because in our culture, the deck is stacked against us. Because think about this for a moment. In our culture, right, what would happen if tomorrow morning, everyone in our society woke up and was content? Like the economy would crash. If tomorrow morning, all of us woke up and said, you know what? Yeah, my, my car's old. It doesn't have all the nice new features, but it's good. It's still running. So I don't need a new one. I'll be good. Hey, yeah, my, my clothes are a little worn, but hey, you know, they, they still fit, whatever, so I can make that last for another season. Yeah, my iPhone's not the newest, the camera doesn't look great, but you know what? I can make calls, I can send a text message, so, you know, I'll keep it until it breaks. If tomorrow everyone in America woke up and was somehow immediately content, our entire economy would crash. Like we'd be in trouble. And so, literally, there are advertisers who spend billions and billions and billions of dollars every year to make sure that that doesn't happen. Right? Think about this. Billions of dollars are spent to make sure that you and me don't wake up tomorrow content. So it's hard. This is hard living in the kind of society and culture that we do to be content. But Paul says here, hey, godliness And contentment lead to true wealth, to true riches, to a life with fulfillment and joy and satisfaction. So he says, hey, you need to learn to live a life where if your basic needs are met, you should be able to be okay, to be content with that. And so what Paul says here is that that contentment, it's really, it's ultimately about being satisfied with what God has already given us, to being satisfied with what we have. That's what contentment is, being satisfied with what we have. Discontentment, on the other hand, is thinking that we can never be satisfied until we get what we don't yet have. Right, you see the difference there? So let's unpack this real quick. Um, it's, it doesn't mean that you are discontent. If you look back, if you set back and say, hey, you know, maybe, maybe our family's growing, we're running out of space, so we need to kind of figure out a plan. We need to save either to kind of to move into a bigger apartment or move into a bigger house. That's not discontentment. It's not discontent to say, hey, my, my phone's really old. It, um, if I were to get the new one with some new features, that would really make work a lot easier. I'd be able to do some more things and be more successful in business. So maybe I should try to figure out what I need to do to get a new phone. That's not discontentment. What is discontentment is to step back and say, man, until we get that new house or that new apartment, we won't be okay. We won't be satisfied. Or until I get that new phone, I'm not going to be okay. I'm not going to be satisfied that's discontentment so contentment it's it's about being able to be okay being satisfied being fulfilled with what god has already given us discontentment say man i'm not going to be okay i'm not going to be satisfied i'm not going to be fulfilled until i get what i don't yet have what god has not yet given me and so think about this if we go all the way back to genesis to so the beginning The fall of man, in part, not in full, but the fall of man, in part, was a contentment issue, wasn't it? Because think about what happened with Adam and Eve. God came and God said, you may eat the fruit of every tree in the garden except this one. That's what God said. He said, you have everything you want. You can do whatever you want. You can enjoy the fruit of any tree in the garden except this one. And what did Adam and Eve do? Instead of focusing on everything that God had given them, they focused and they desired the one thing that God had not given them. And through that, sin entered the world. And so if we, if we focus on what God has not yet given us, instead of focusing on what God has given us and being content, then it has the the power, the possibility of destroying our lives. Because here's the deal. When we are focusing on what we don't yet have, we enter into this rat race that we will never be fulfilled. Because when we focus on what we don't have, we'll eventually get whatever that thing is, but then there will be something else we don't have. So we're always going to be climbing this ladder and we will never truly learn how to be content and fulfilled. There's always going to be something else. We're going to get that thing, we're going to achieve the result, and it's only going to satisfy for a moment, and then it'll be fleeting. I mean, I remember, uh, I learned this lesson at nine years old. Um, growing up, I, uh, we had a Super Nintendo, and my favorite game as a kid was Mortal Kombat. If you're unfamiliar, it's like this fighting game where like, you, you fight other people, there's blood and guts everywhere. And my parents were um, really conservative, but for some reason, they allowed me to have Mortal Kombat. I still don't understand why. It doesn't make any sense. Like, they wouldn't even let me play with Ninja Turtles because I think someone told them that, like, Ninja Turtles promotes evolution or, like, something crazy. And so I wasn't even allowed to play with Ninja Turtles, but they allowed me to play Mortal Kombat. So we had Mortal Kombat. It was my favorite game. And then um, one year, this new thing came out called the Aura Interactor. I think we got a picture of it. It was super weird and random. I don't know if anybody remembers this, but the Aura Interactor, and the way that this thing was marketed is that they said it was this virtual reality vest, and you wear this virtual reality vest when you play games, and they marketed it by saying that wearing this vest fully immerses you in the game that you're playing. Remember, this is 1994 or so, so the technology is not great. But the way they sold this to me as a nine-year-old, and you could see on the box It says, feel punches, explosions, kicks, uppercuts, slam dunks, crashes, body blows, and more. So I saw this, and I thought, I need this vest when I play Mortal Kombat. So just playing Mortal Kombat, like just the game itself, like that's not going to cut it anymore. I was like, I want to feel like I am in the game. I want to feel the punches. I want to feel the kicks. Like when Scorpion shoots his little spear hook thing at my character and it goes into his chest and he says, get over here. I want to feel like there's a spear hook in my chest. And again, like that sounds awful. But as a nine-year-old, I'm like, that sounds great. Like, that's cool. I want to feel that. So like, I can't just play the game by itself. I need the aura interactor. And then that Christmas, my grandma, Grandma Clark, if you're watching, thank you. I love you. But that Christmas, Grandma Clark got me the Aura Interactor. I opened it, man. I was going crazy. I was over the moon. So of course we pull up the Nintendo, we plug it in. I, I put this thing on. My character gets punched and it kind of just like vibrates a little bit. And then my character gets kicked and it just like vibrates a little bit. It doesn't even feel like a punch. It doesn't even hurt. Doesn't feel like a kick. Like, I, like what, what's going on this thing is just vibrating this is so lame this isn't doing what it promised and I was like this is awful and I was immediately let down I was immediately onto to something else that I needed to be satisfied but, but that's that's how this goes when when we look and we try to be find our contentment in things we don't yet have when we say man that's what I need If I get that thing, then I'll be happy, then I'll be satisfied, then I can kind of slow down and pause. When we live with that mindset, we're never going to find contentment, we're never going to be satisfied, we're never going to have joy because as soon as we get that thing, we're immediately going to be on to something else. And so Paul says that, that to be content, we have to learn to be satisfied, we learn to be grateful with what God has already given us. That if God has just provided for our basic needs, then not that we aren't working for more, not that we don't have goals or anything like that, but if God has provided for our basic needs, we should be okay. We should be content. We should say, I can be fulfilled and satisfied in that. But then what Paul does here, so he says godliness with contentment is great wealth, but then what he does is he gives us actually really sobering warning of what will happen in our lives if we don't learn contentment. He says if we don't learn contentment, then what will happen is we will be controlled by what he calls the love of money. He says basically the two paths are we learn contentment or we are controlled by the love of money. And look what he says about that. Verse 9. He says, But people who long to be rich fall into temptation and are trapped by many foolish and harmful desires that plunge them into what? Into ruin destruction like he's saying this is a big deal like this isn't a small issue this is a life altering issue says who people who long to be rich fall into temptation and are trapped by foolish and harmful desires that plunge them into ruin and destruction and then one of the most misquoted but most famous verses in the bible he says for the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil says, the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Now let's unpack that, okay, because again, this is one of the most misquoted verses in the entire Bible, because we've probably all heard people um, say, oh, the Bible says money is the root of all kinds of evil. You've heard that, right? That's not what the Bible says. The Bible doesn't say that money is the root of all kinds of evil. It says the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. So here's what we have to understand. Paul is not teaching that wealth is immoral. That's not what he's teaching. Wealth is amoral, meaning it's neither morally good or morally bad. Wealth is neutral. It's just a thing. It's not good, and it is not bad. Now, we can acquire wealth in ways that are immoral, we can acquire wealth in ways that are morally good. We can spend wealth in ways that are immoral, or we can spend wealth in ways that are good. Like, right, you can use wealth to, you know, I don't know, fund terrorism or feed the hungry. It can go either way. But the wealth in and of itself is not the issue, it is amoral. And so, listen, like, because some of you may need to understand this. If you have worked hard, If you have invested wisely, if you started a business and you took care of your customers and you treated your employees with dignity and respect and through that you were successful in the workforce and you are able to acquire um, some wealth, listen, you don't need to feel guilty about that. That's not what Paul is saying here. Being wealthy is not synonymous with being evil. Again, those don't go together. Wealth, again, it's amoral. It's not good. It's not bad. That's not what Paul is saying. But what he is saying, and he is saying this very clearly, what he is saying is that in life, when we set out in our life, in our primary aim, our primary goal above all other goals is to obtain wealth. When that's what life is about, getting rich and getting wealthy, Paul is very clearly saying when that happens, we're in trouble. When that happens, when our primary aim in life is wealth, not it may, but he says it will lead to all kinds of evil. And that's what he's saying. And, and again, think about this, because this can be, it, wealth is amoral. It's either good or bad. So again, you can, you can start a business, and you can you know, run your business with integrity, and you can take care of your customers, and you can take care of your employees, and you can get wealthy doing that. That's great. Or at the other end, though. Here's the deal. If you start a business and you say, the goal, the end game, the only reason I'm doing this is to get wealthy, if that's your goal, to start a business, what's going to happen is you're going to lie, you're going to cheat, you're going to steal, you're going to abuse your employees and treat them like slaves instead of human beings with dignity and respect. If that is your end goal, you will do whatever it takes to achieve that goal. You'll do whatever it takes to get more money. And so Paul is saying here, hey, if we don't learn contentment, instead, if we are just pursuing more money and more possessions, thinking that's what we need to be fulfilled, he said that is going to lead down this dangerous, dangerous path where eventually we're going to do anything to achieve that goal of acquiring more. And again, what did Paul say here? He said that path of life ultimately ends in ruin and destruction no way around it It may take a lot it may take a while but ultimately he says that path that way of living ends in ruin and destruction so again there's two paths that Paul kind of lays out here the path of contentment or the path of the love of money setting more money and more things more possessions is our end goal thinking that's what we need to be fulfilled which he says leads to destruction so on a practical level like what can we do what can we do on a practical level to learn contentment, to learn how to be content? So go down to verse 17. Paul lays it out pretty, clear, uh, pretty clearly. Verse 17. Paul says, teach those who are rich in the world not to be proud and not to trust in their money, which is so unreliable. Their trust should be in God who richly gives us all we need for our enjoyment. Tell them to use their money to do good. They should be rich in good works and generous to those in need always being ready to share with others so Paul lays it out here he says that in order to find contentment in order to turn away from the love of money and find contentment what we do is we trust in God and we give generously he's saying to find contentment you start by trusting God and giving generously now now by the way because if you're like me like you read this and he started this out he says teach those who are rich in the world so so there's some of us who are like hey I'm not rich, so it doesn't apply to me. Like, I get a pass on this. Here's the deal. I'm looking out of the room right now. Um, I'd be willing to bet that on a global perspective, all of us in this room are rich. Right now, now whether you make $30,000 a year annually or $300,000 a year annually or anywhere in between that, On a global perspective, you are rich. You may not be like Houston Heights, Garden Oaks, rich on that scale. But again, on a global scale, if we line up everyone on earth, all 8 billion people, um, I I think almost all of us in this room are rich. The things we have access to, we are rich. And and so when, when Paul says here, teach those who are rich, he's talking to us Americans in 2023. He's talking to us. Don't, don't try to think that we're excused from this because we're not. He says, teach those who are rich to trust God and be generous. He says, the way that you begin to defeat the love of money in your life is by trusting God and being rich. Now, we kind of wrap up, for those of us who are followers of Jesus, those of us who have surrendered our life to the lordship, to the kingship, of Jesus. Let's get kind of practical for a second about what this looks like for us. The Bible shows us that that trusting God and being generous in this area of money, for those of us who are followers of Christ, begins with something the Bible calls the tithe. Now the tithe was something that was instituted back in the Old Testament, and what it was was that the people of God would come and they would bring the first 10% of um, essentially their income, they would bring that first 10% and they would give it back to God. And here's something that's really fascinating. This area, this idea of the tithe, it is the only time in the entire Bible where God tells us to test him in something. In Malachi 3.10, God actually says, hey, bring me the tithe, bring me the first 10% of your income. He says, test me in this and see that I will not provide for you. And and so practically speaking, when, when we bring a portion of our income and we give it back to God, and that's what it is. Remember last week, everything starts with God. Everything belongs to God. So when we come and we give to God through giving to support the work of the local church, when we do that, we're not giving to God. We're giving back to God what is already his. We're giving back to God what he placed into our hands. But when we do that, when we, if you are a tither, what is happening is when you are bringing that 10% to support the work of the local church and you are giving it back to God, what you are saying there is you're saying, God, I am trusting that you will provide for me better with the remaining 90% than I could provide for myself with all 100%. That's part of what we're saying when we bring the tithe, when we bring the offering to God. God, I trust that you will still provide. And so the tithe, it's a very practical way for us to trust that God will provide. To step back and say, God, I'm going to give this back to you. I'm going to live open-handedly. I'm going to give back to you, and I'm going to trust that you're still going to care, that you're still going to provide. I'm going to trust that my needs will still be met. It's a way to trust God. That's what the tithe is. It's a way to trust God. And listen, maybe, maybe some of you, are, I'm sure some of you are like me. How many of you, you're not really as much spenders, but you're savers. Like, like Yeah, don't be ashamed of that. Like, it seems like every marriage has a spender and a saver, right? Like I'm the saver in our marriage. I hate spending money. I just want to put everything away in an account and just watch it grow and be able to retire one day. So the challenge for me Right? It's like when when we tithe, when we bring that 10% and give it back to God, there's times where I look at that money and I think, man, if we didn't do this, if we didn't tithe, but we took that money and we put that into a retirement account with compound interest, you know, over the next 30 years or so, that's going to be a big chunk of money. We're going to be able to retire a lot nicer if we didn't tithe. But by bringing it to God, it's a way of saying, no, no, no I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to trust you, God. Yes, I could keep that for myself, but I'm going to trust that you will do a better job of providing with 90% than I could provide with 10%. So, so the tithe, bringing that to God, it's a way to trust God, to trust that God will provide for us. Listen, the, the tithe, bringing the tithe to God, it is also a way to very tangibly practice commitment. Commitment because when you give like when you bring an offering or you bring a tithe to god you have to stop and and you think and you realize okay like i am giving this money back to god i am letting it go i'm not keeping it for myself and when you do that there's going to be a moment where you stop and thinking you write that check or you go online and you put in your debit card information you think man there's a lot of cool things i could do with that money right here's the deal if if you have not yet made a practice in your life of tithing, of bringing 10% and giving it back to God, listen, this isn't a matter of salvation. It's not a matter of God loving you any more or less. Um, I don't want you to feel guilty or anything like that, but, but here's the deal. If you haven't yet done that, and maybe the reason is because you're thinking, well, I, I got some things I need to do first. You know, when, when I get that raise or when I do this, when I'm making more, it will be easier and then I'll do it. That's not true. It's not true. I, said, I, I started tithing when I was in college because I heard a sermon. I felt convicted. I felt like that's what God wanted me to do. I was in between jobs. Um, the only income I was making was 75 bucks a week for this um, little gig playing guitar somewhere. And so I started tithing on my 750 I mean, it was easy. And that was easy to do because like seven fifty is like, hey, that's a burrito from Chipotle. Like I'll give up one burrito from Chipotle a week for a guy. And this was like, you know, this was, this was, you know, a while ago back when a burrito at Chipotle was still seven fifty. So the good old days, right? But seven fifty, I couldn't do much with it. So it was easy to do. But then as my income grew and that number, that tithe number, what I gave back became larger and larger. I stopped, I'm like, I, if we didn't tithe for a few months, we could actually do some fun things. Like That could be a car payment, or a couple months of not doing this and that, that could be a pretty fun vacation. But, but see, by making that choice to bring the tithe, it's a way for us to say, no, no, no. Yes, there's all these other things I could do if I kept that for myself, but I'm going to give it back to God, because I'm going to be content with what He's given me. Yes, there's all these things I could do, but I'm going to say, no, God, I trust that He'll provide. And I'm going to be okay, I'm going to be content with what you have already given me. So Paul says here again, he lays out in this passage that there are two ways for us to live. We pursue contentment, and the way we do that is by trusting God and being generous with our money, or we pursue the love of money, which he says ends in ruin and destruction. As I'm going to invite the band to come back up in a minute, we're going to continue worshiping through song this morning. But um, I I just want all of us to take a moment and pause and and think real quick. First of all, think for yourself and ask God to reveal to you, like, which of those two paths are you on? Are you on a path where you have learned to be content? Where you have learned this principle of contentment, where you can say, yeah, I'm a content person. I am okay with what God has given me. Are you on that path? Or are you on the path of the love of money? And again, Paul says, man, that leads in ruin and destruction. And so here's the question for us today. If you're on that path of the love of money, what is one practical step that you can take this week to move toward contentment? What's one step you can take this week to begin trusting God in this area? Trusting God in this area. So maybe if you're a follower of Christ... It's with that whole idea of the tithe, of bringing a portion of your income to support the work of the local church. If you haven't taken that step yet, that is a great first step to begin practicing generosity, to begin practicing contentment. Um, maybe you already do that. Maybe, maybe you tithe, you are very faithful in that, but maybe even just the tithe, that's routine for you. You don't feel it, you don't notice it. For you, the tithe isn't even very generous. So maybe there's another step for you. Uh, maybe you need to continue doing that, but but Paul says here, hey, always be ready to be generous and share with those in need. Always be ready to share with others. So maybe you need to keep doing that. Keep up the tithe. But then as you go throughout life, you just need to keep open eyes and open hands and say, God, I want you to show me this week somebody in my life who is genuinely in need, who I can bless, who I can be generous to. And you need to live with this posture of being open-handed and be ready to be generous to those around you. But think about it, just, just ask God to show you what is a step, what is one simple practical step you can take this week to move away from the love of money and start trusting God and being content. Those as a close, I want, to, I want to read from Romans chapter 8. Uh, because, hey, can I be honest? I have a hard time trusting God. I want to trust in myself. I want to trust in my effort. Um, I have a hard time trusting God. And so maybe that's you too. And I want to read this verse that reminds us why we can trust God. Romans 8, verse 31. This is what Paul, the same guy who writes here in First Timothy, the same guy. This is what he says. He says, what shall we say about such wonderful things as this? If God is for us, who can ever be against us? And listen to this. He says, since he did not spare even his own son, but gave him up for us all, won't he also give us everything else? Paul says, God didn't hold back in his generosity from you. He didn't even spare the life of his son, Jesus. So do you really think he'll hold back anything else from you? What Paul is saying there is that if God was so gracious, if God was so generous, if God loved us so much that he sent his perfect son to go to the cross to die and rise from death for our sin, if God even did that, man, we can trust him with our mortgage. We can trust him. With our income. We can trust him with our bank account. He didn't even hold back his son from us. Do you think he'll hold back anything else? Paul is saying, trust God. Trust God. He loves you. He cares for you. He is for you. So, again, we're going to stand in a moment. We're going to sing. We're going to worship through song. But again, if you're a follower of Christ, I want you to just kind of take a moment and quietly in your heart do some business with God. And ask God to show you. I don't want to tell you what this step is for you. Ask God to show you. Say, God, what is one practical step I can take this week to start learning contentment? What is one practical step I can take this week to show that I trust you and move toward contentment? As we sing, as we worship, ask God to show you what that step is and then take that step this week. Let's pray.